Feliz Navidad, uh, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for The Goldberg File, for David French's newsletter, for The Morning Dispatch. And uh, starting next week, uh, there will actually be a brand new website for web-only stuff as well. So please check it out. We're very excited. It's the full launch of uh, thedispatch.com starting uh, January 7th. And um, I am talking to you from my hotel room in Madrid. Uh, Joining me through the miracle of Skype is uh, Jack Butler. Hi, Jack. Don't say that on the plane back. What? What you just said. What did I say? You said what, hijack. What? Through it. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm kind of slow um, these days. Uh, but yes, that was very mirthful. <laughs> People have been so, making versions of that joke to me since uh, since September 11th, 2001. People with dark humor. Yeah, I've I've been um making the joke for a long time that. Whenever they serve, like whenever they have the beverage service, you should take a sip of the coffee and shout, Alu Akbar! That's great coffee. <laughs> um, but um, anyhow, yeah, so I'm in Madrid. It's been, I've been in Spain for a long time now. For listeners who don't know, my daughter is going to school in Spain for the entire junior year of high school. And I also had a nephew out here um, who's doing a semester of college here and so we convened a large swath of the um, Gavora side my wife's side of the family for Christmas and New Year's and I've been in at an Airbnb in Madrid in a really funky neighborhood and then we went to Seville and did a day trip to Cordoba which Jack I highly recommend you do someday and um, and now I'm back in Madrid while my wife and daughter are in Vienna and because my daughter was desperate to get out of Spain for a little while. Um, and I'm heading home first thing tomorrow. And uh, it's been it's been great. Um, I have achieved something that many thought was impossible, which is uh, ham saturation. <laughs> I no longer can eat any more ham. <laughs> um, it's uh, I'm, I, I literally I think I sweat Iberian pork oil um, because that's they put it. They put it in everything. Yeah, but it makes it very hard for muggers to get a hold of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's been great. And you get, you know, and it's really wonderful to have a daughter who actually speaks enough Spanish to like have, to be able to ask follow up questions of waiters and, and make reservations on the phone and all of these kinds of things that are really hard if you don't speak the language. And, uh, it's been really, Really wonderful for my daughter. My daughter's had a bit of a rough time of it. Her first host family, um, really, really, really just didn't cook. And, um, I've since learned that a lot of Spaniards don't really cook that much. Um, which is why the restaurants are full all of the time. People eat out a lot here and they spend an enormous amount of time sitting around nursing beers and eating little, uh, nummy things called tapas. Um, which I think explains why Steve Hayes loved it here so much. Cause, um, as a sort of visitor from Mars, you would think all Spaniards do is talk and slowly drink beers throughout the course of the day. Um, which is sort of like 
you know, if, if Steve subscribed to some faith that involved, you know, martyrdom and suicide bombers, he would very much likely just sort of end up in a cafe in Seville for the rest of his life. Um, <laughs> There's the anyways, third terrorism ahead, joke re- of the podcast. <laughs> um, so like early, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show, but on the podcast before, but uh, at one point early on, uh, while she was adjusting to her first host family, she since moved. And they really, I mean, it's not just that they didn't cook. They didn't like really know how to cook. And, um, my daughter, um, sort of choking back sobs because she was upset about some other stuff said that she knew she was in real trouble when she saw that they were using their oven for storage. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, which is a dead giveaway that you don't regularly cook much. Yeah. That's um, like college dude house move right there. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, um, so she, you know, I, I, we've eaten a lot of Spanish food while we're here, but for the first, I don't know, week, I probably had more cheeseburgers and Chinese food because my daughter was so desperate to have that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, anyway, so it's, it's been really interesting, um, to sort of get a little deeper dive into the culture. Madrid is an amazing city this time of year. It's unbelievably packed. I mean, and you're just like, bumping into people constantly. I don't like to get bumped into people. The rules for pedestrians, which I'm a real stickler for having grown up in New York, like I would not leap to the parapets to oppose some sort of serious corporal punishment for people who stop when they get right off an escalator. But between the tourists and the the natives, there's just an enormous amount of people who on these tiny little streets who... um will just sort of stop in front of you and have a conversation and block you and make you walk out on the road and all that kind of stuff. And it, it fills me with a more rage than I'm accustomed to. Would you be, um, so would you be, uh, opposed to sort of Stalinist brutalist architecture that encouraged people always to keep walking and never to stop? No, I wouldn't go that far, okay. but you know, uh, pain collars, of some kind, um, um, or just a certain amount of tolerance for loud, boisterous Americans to scream at people when they don't understand about like how to use escalators or walk, um, you know, to the right, um, on the road to let people pass them by. It's a lot of, uh, I, I've probably put in three miles a day of walking since I've been here and it's, it's one of the great sources of my frustration. Um, but, uh, and I, we saw, so we rented this Airbnb in this marginal, semi-marginal or once marginal neighborhood in Madrid. It's really well located, but it's gentrifying really fast. And so like a lot of the North Africans and, and Pakistanis and, and other people, poor immigrants who live around there are kind of being edged away. And as the hipsters move in, and so you'll have really interesting kind of like, um, diversity of, of stores, these really, really, like in New York, we would call them bodegas, um, as a slightly different meaning here, because it's actually a Spanish word, meaning like wine store or something. But, um, uh, these little tiny, tiny supermarkets that, um, you would almost suspect are money laundering operations give it, or drug dealing outfits giving how little stuff they have on the shelves in them. And they're for poor people. And right next to them are like, uh, gluten-free bakeries and hipster coffee places, cheek by jowl. And, 
uh, part of this neighborhood, I can't remember what it's called, but part of this neighborhood's famous for its sort of edgy graffiti and street art, which is all over the place. And at one point, my daughter pointed out some graffiti that said, um, uh, your street art is raising my rent. because these tourists come to see like the famous street art um and murals and whatnot and it makes the neighborhood more attractive even though it's supposed to be this expression of like gritty proletarian you know frustration and all the hipsters come all these japanese people come with their cameras and take pictures of these murals and it's driving up the rents around there so it was kind of funny that reminds me of Um, the uh, scene in life of brian when uh brian is caught uh, vandalizing a, a square in Jerusalem, and a, gar- a Roman guard played by John Cleese finds that the he's 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 written in red paint. Romans go home, but he's he's written it in the wrong uh, grammar, and so the guard makes him correct <laughs> it, and just endlessly write it all over the square, and inadvertently help him accomplish his job. It's a very funny. <laughs> I don't scene. remember that. Oh yeah, it's great. And then it's it. There's a similar scene in the movie Canadian Bacon, which is, I think, the only, the the best thing that Michael Moore has ever done, that movie. Oh, my God. Was that a Michael Moore movie? Yeah. Canadian Bacon? Yes. The, the really? With John Candy and Alan Alda, it's, it's Michael Moore. I hope you're right about this, because this... Well, I hope you're wrong about this in one sense, but I mean, I, I know, I, I don't want any data points that make me think any better of Michael Moore. Yeah. Um, it's, it's him, that, man. That's fascinating. It's him. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's the thing I learned today. Um, it's a dumb movie, but it's a funny movie. I, it was a good. Yeah, no, it's a funny movie. I, I, I liked it. I haven't seen it in 25 years. It's one of those movies that I'm not sure I would like as much if I saw it today. But there are a lot of those. Um, but the, the the part where the like, Americans are rudely running around, shoving Canadian people out of the way, and all the Canadians are saying "sorry" is that's that'll be funny forever. <laughs> um, that's like finding when I found out that Oliver Stone was part of the creative team behind Conan. Very early the in the, he wanted to make it like a a future dystopia. Uh, Did he yeah, really? but that he was not. He I don't think he had any hand in the final screenplay drafts. It was taken over by John Milius, who's his, like ideological opposite. Yeah, no, Milius is 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 great. Um, someone I I met somebody. To, all right, so uh, I'm 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 telegraphing in advance that this is outrageous name dropping. Um, but I was. In Pat Sajak's skybox <laughs> at um, a baseball game and in LA, and um, I met this guy who, longtime Hollywood producer, worked on like the Back to the Future movies and all these other things, and told me these great stories about Milius about how um, when he signed a deal with some studio where they were desperate to have him, I don't remember what movie, um, he put in the contract that the um, studio head had to personally buy him as a gift some crazy expensive shotgun. <laughs> and the studio was like, look, I mean, it's a rounding error in what we're paying you. Can't you just like take the money we're giving you and buy your own shotgun? 
<laughs> he was like, nope, I want, I want him to purchase it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which I just thought was a great sort of like, um, swagger move to like force some anti-gun liberal guy to go buy some Beretta shotgun or something <laughs> and present it to him. Um, I, I guess we should talk about some news of the day. Uh, I woke up to the news that, uh, Suleimani had been killed. Um, who can we, should we define who this person is? Sure. Cause um, I think I, in fact, it's, I, I would just, I think that there's a lot of people who think that everyone knows who this guy is, but he's actually not. He doesn't have, despite being like a comparable figure to Osama bin Laden, I don't think he has the same sort of, name recognition or infamy among like the average American citizen as bin Laden had. No, I think that's right. And I think it's funny you bring this up because I woke up to a whole bunch of people making the same joke over and over again on Twitter, which I know is never happens. Um, and people were saying how all these people were, who had no idea who Kassam Suleimani was are now experts on the ramifications of his killing um and the thing is i'm i'm, I'm i think you're right but i'm a little sh- it, it, it's a little shocking given the role that he played during the iraq war killing americans and it was something that at least among conservatives who were following the war closely was talked about quite a bit but at the same time, I think you're right because I, the it, one of the frustrations back then was, and through the Obama-Iran deal, was the way in which the mainstream media really downplayed what Iran was up to in Iraq and how, uh, you know, the, the, the narrative that the Iraq war was simply Bush's blunder, and I do think the Iraq war was a mistake. I'm going to write a G-file about this today, I think. But... Um, I do think the Iraq war was a mistake, but um, the lack of desire to follow up on the fact that the Iranians were actively making things much, much worse for the Americans and for the Iraqis as well. And I think it was because people were so afraid that Bush would do something with Iran um, that they just sort of downplayed it. Um, to an extent that I think did a real disservice. I mean, the guy was responsible for the murder and maiming of untold numbers of American troops through, you know, these proxy militias that they set up. As um, head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Right. So he's the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. We have a good sort of who is, because I'm uh, Suleimani thing in the morning dispatch today, which people can find at thedispatch.com. Um, and because I was six hours ahead, I don't normally do like the line edits on the morning dispatch, but since they had to rewrite it at like 3.30 in the morning, uh, they asked me to take a fresh eye to it. So I did that on the train ride from Seville this morning. And um, so Suleimani was the head of the Quds Force, or, and um, basically what he did was fund, organize, facilitate the formation of all sorts of militias and terrorist outfits um, throughout the Middle East. And they were sort of the, um, you know, the proxies for Iranian foreign policy to destabilize, blackmail, extort various regimes to, um, 
support Shia and Iranian influence in these various countries, whether it's in with Hezbollah in Lebanon or you know in Iraq and and elsewhere, and um, and basically he was the 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 linchpin, the indispensable man for the Iranian policy of sort of of, of low grade guerrilla warfare against America, America's allies. Um, in the Middle East, and he had an enormous amount of blood on his hand. He apparently he was a pretty brilliant guy, and and arguably, I think Graham Wood, I haven't read it yet, has a piece in the Atlantic about how maybe he was the most um, successful military leader in the Middle East of the last decade, and I think that might be true. Um, and but the th- I guess the thing that interests me, I mean, there are other podcasts for people who want to do deep dives on all of this stuff, and maybe we'll have. Um, Ken Pollock back on to talk about all of it. But, um, the thing that sort of strikes me looking at it a little bit from afar in terms of the conversation as it's unraveling is, you know, whether Trump made the right decision or not. Um, and I, I think from what we know now, he probably did, though I'm, I'm a little concerned about how much planning for what comes next has been done. But that's, you know, a separate issue. The guy, you know, he, he, you know, he needed killing, or at least he deserved it, right? I mean, whether, whether we should have killed him now is a prudential question that only time will tell, given that we don't know what Iran's response is going to be and what our response to Iran's response is going to be and how much, how much planning we did for the, uh, ramifications of all of this. But, um, this is the thing I kind of want to write about. There's this weird thing that happens in foreign policy. It happens in, in domestic life too, where if you think somebody was, was, if you think it was wrong to kill Soleimani, there are people who all of a sudden feel like somehow we're supposed to be sympathetic to Soleimani. You know, it's sort of similar to like when, say you have a murderer who, the cops can't prove it, so they they frame him, right? They plant evidence or something like that, and that's a gross violation of of due process and um, and the justice system. But and you should be mad at the cops for doing it, but you really shouldn't have any sympathy for the guy, for the murderer. Um, and it's sort of similar, you know. We saw a lot of this during the Iraq War. You know, if you really, really, really thought the Iraq War was a mistake from the get go, which was, you know, certainly in retrospect, you know, a defensible position. It still doesn't mean you should have any sympathy for, you know, Saddam Hussein. Um, Saddam Hussein, you know, was just a blood-soaked murderer who killed tens of thousands of people, tortured people, all the rest. And any, any, any fate that he met, um, wasn't harsh enough. Um, and so you can think the Iraq war was a mistake. That doesn't mean that necessarily that you should have any sympathy for Saddam Hussein. And similarly, you can be, you can think as a prudential matter that this was not the right time or the right way or the, you know, all that kind of stuff for taking Soleimani out. It doesn't mean that, that you should have an ounce of sympathy for Soleimani or anybody else really in that convoy. This is the life they chose. Um, they've been backing terrorists around the region for, for ages and anything that he got, he had coming, you know, a thousand times over, but it's, it, it's, I'm in a sort of a weird place on all of this because you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to plagiarize too much from the thing I'm writing, but you know, the two biggest shocks to my 
certainty in the last 20 years were how the Iraq war played out and the election of Donald Trump and, you know, what's happened to conservatism since then. And I've kind of lost my taste for a lot of the rah-rah stuff. Um, I still believe in an assertive foreign policy. I still believe in protecting our interests and our allies. I still believe in promoting democracy where we can. I still believe that using force is often necessary and that we shouldn't be afraid of doing it on some weird global version of, you know, uh, due process or any of that kind of stuff. And we should be unapologetic about supporting our interests. Um, but like, you know, uh, just after Donald Trump tweeted a, a picture of the American flag, Gorka tweeted some juvenile thing about how me and Bill Crystal and some other people are beta males and can't deal with all of this stuff. And, um, you know, and basically everything that the, the sort of Gorka crowd represents right now, I just viscerally reject. And, you know, and but it, you know, again, I know I spend too much time talking about the guy because he's such a bozo, but, you know, he's practically tumescent in his fawning over Donald Trump and Donald Trump's manliness and alpha dogness. And he's a talk radio host talking about other people being beta males. Well, you know, I mean, what makes you more of a beta male than being sort of a throne sniffing lickspittle for some guy that you think is just the, the definition of manliness? And there's a lot of that kind of testosterone fueled, I don't want to call it jingoism, but you know, it's just, it just leaves me cold. And I was, you know, I was guilty of not Gorka levels of asininity, but I was, I was guilty of some of that kind of rah-rah stuff during the Iraq war. And I regret it now. And, um, this is a complicated thing. Um, I support our troops. I think our troops are heroes and all of that stuff. Um, and I'm proud to be an American and I'll, I don't feel less patriotic, but the, the, I don't look forward to the coming, you know, uh, America love it or leave it BS that we're going to be hearing about a lot of this stuff. And, um, and you can just feel it coming down the pike that this, you know, now that it's a, uh, you know, we have a wartime commander in chief and blah, 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 that we have to put aside our, um, differences and rally around the president. I just, I, I'm not feeling it. And, um, it kind of makes me, it kind of reminds me of the, the Randolph Bourne essay, you know, um, our enemy, the state, where he talks about how what war does is it turns the government, which is supposed to be the place where we argue about stuff and we express our democratic disagreements over policy. Um, it turns the government into the state, which is this symbol of the national spirit and everyone has to fall in line. And I have no confidence that Donald Trump will be anything but ham handed in how he plays that card. And I have no doubt that, you know, the, the sort of Gorka crowd will be all too eager to play into it. And, um, I'm, you know, I, I, I think Iran was asking for this. They were testing us. Um, but, uh, we kind of need some level headedness right now. Um, because this is going to get a lot more complicated. And, um, I don't have as much confidence in the 
ability of this administration to be planning for what's coming next. Um, and I don't have a lot of confidence that they're not going to just basically go to take their signals from places like, you know, Fox and Friends or talk radio or the more asinine corners of Twitter and get all of their confirmation biases reinforced. And that makes me a little nervous, but time will tell. I, I mean, I, I don't think this was an outrageous thing to do so long as there's a, a plan for what comes next. Um, and I think that pushing back on Iran was almost inevitable. And, but this is a big move, you know, so I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens rather than just sort of jumping on a bandwagon. Ugh, come on. Why don't you say something incendiary? <laughs> Black and white, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, Are we turning the desert to glass or what? <laughs> Rubble doesn't make trouble. But it is interesting, you know, the, there's definitely an increased security presence at the train stations and on the street in Madrid. I mean, I think some of that has to do with sort of holiday celebrations here. But my guess is that's sort of a chicken or the egg thing. There are holiday celebrations here, so that means there are a lot of soft targets around too. And I, I did suggest to my wife that she maybe not go to places frequented by a lot of Americans in Vienna just yet. And, you know, there are probably better times to be doing international air travel as well, but so be it. Um, well, at least Vienna waits anyhow. for you. Yeah, I, I like Vienna. I mean, I, 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 I have long-standing peeves about Austria, um, but... Uh, but not the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But not the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? I mean, my... Um, I think we've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, right? But, like, the, the, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Swiss partisan... And the Swiss get all of this grief for being neutral during World War II, but they really, you know, the, the choice wasn't to become an ally of the United States. The choice was, you know, they had a lot of German-speaking Swiss. They were surrounded um, by the Italians to the south and obviously the Germans and, um, and, and then occupied France. And their armed neutrality was a real inconvenience for the Nazis. And they didn't sign up to be part of the Axis when you could make a case as a matter of realpolitik, it could. And meanwhile, the Austrians literally threw parades for the Nazis when during the Anschluss, when the Nazis basically annexed Austria. And, some, and a lot of the nastiest Nazis, including Hitler himself, were Austrians. And yet, at the end of World War II, for Cold War reasons, Austria was named the first victim of the Nazis. And has never had the historical comeuppance and criticism that it deserved. While the, the Swiss got an enormous amount of grief. Some of it absolutely deserved for like the Nazi gold stuff and whatnot. But, um. I just heard your they, phone uh, go off, by the way, which is. I wish I had been there to tell you to turn it off. off. I know. I apologize. Um. Anyway, Nazi gold. So anyway, Nazi gold. So anyway, I, I. I, I, and so, like, there's a little creepiness to Austria when you go there because, unlike the Germans who have dedicated vast amounts of time and energy to dealing with their Nazi past and in all of that, the Austrians just kind of airbrushed it away. And you know, I mean, it's it, it's you know, you, <laughs> it's it's 
it's a little unfair to con- continue to harp on it, given that you know anybody who's alive during you know the t- the the Third Reich in Austria is probably what at least seventy five. You know, um, but even when like my first time I went there as a kid, you know, a lot of them were fifty five and um, or younger and. Um, and it's a country that has just never, sort of never dealt with its demons in the same way. That said, Austria is just an amazing, I mean, uh, Vienna is just an amazing city. And, um, I'm really jealous that I couldn't go. Um, but be that as it may, I will, I, I, I shall return. Huh. I'm now um, I'm trying to figure out if, if the balance of your marks is going to turn off our 12 or however many there are Austrian listeners or not. Cause I'm sure they'll like your praise of Vienna, but the, the, the urging that they come to terms with their past as a, as a nation is maybe a bit uncomfortable. We'll find out. Austrian e- listeners, I'm please sure. send us an email at theremnantpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah. Please send Jack an email. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, where else should we go with this? Um, what, what, like, I, I, it's been real hard for me to, like, write columns and stuff because, once you know, my life is so defined by sort of being in the rhythm of, of of the news cycle, and when you get out of it, it becomes really difficult to sort of insert yourself back in and figure out what's going on. Um, I felt a little guilty. I, I wrote my syndicated column on basically the exact same subject I wrote a G file about when I was in Spain uh, in the spring, which is about how I think the EU is got a sort of fatal flaw in it because it, it you know, it, there's this weird catch-22 dynamic going on with with how the EU works. On the one hand, they are making it much, much easier for sort of sub-nations. I don't know, you know, I don't know really what to call them. Historic nations that are part of larger nations, like sort of Catalonia was a, you know, its own country for a long time. It has its own language. It was repressed and oppressed by um, Spaniards for a long time, um, particularly under Franco. Um, and now they want independence. And it makes it easier to make the case for independence for Catalonia or for Scotland or, you know, all those weird little things in, in Belgium. Um, because if the EU actually becomes a serious federal government of the United States of Europe, um, a phrase first used, I, I understand, or at least first popularized by Victor Hugo at a peace conference in 1849. Um, uh, but if, if there becomes a federal government of the United States of Europe, then the practical argument for staying in a country starts to wither away. So if you have the EU, which is in charge of the currency, increasingly in charge of regulation and taxation, increasingly in charge of foreign policy. What does a Catalonian need the Spanish government for? And so you get these sort of sub-nationalist movements within these nations precisely because the EU makes it a much more practical thing to talk about secession. But at the same time, the EU cannot survive if it allows these sub-nations to assert themselves, because, you know, Spain will pull out if the EU supports Catalonia um, uh, or the Basques, you know, if if Bavaria wanted to secede from 
Germany, the Germans would probably pull out of the EU. And, um, and so you get this, um, weird dynamic that's exacerbated all the more precisely because the EU, as it becomes more assertive, starts arousing nationalist ire among the majority populations of these places. Like the other day, what gave me this idea, you know, there, there, there are these Catalonian legislators who pushed for a national referendum on secession uh, earlier or last year, uh, since we're now in 2020. And um, the... Uh, uh, and the Spanish government, I think, sentenced them to jail. And um, the EU government, or the court, a court, an EU court in a European court in Belgium, said, no, 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 they should have um, legislative immunity and that they shouldn't go to jail. And now all the Spaniards are pissed off at the EU about this this violation of their sovereignty by this faraway government, and they're going more nationalistic. It's very similar to what happened in Brexit. No one, you know, there's very little English nationalism in the United Kingdom until the EU came, you know, it started to really become a, a, a burr in their saddle. And now sort of English nationalism is much more of a thing. Um, because what happens is that the EU undermines the sovereignty of these national governments too. And so that makes those those majorities more nationalistic, which makes the minorities feel even more distinct from the the country that they belong to. And I don't think that, I mean, I, I said in the column, it's like a genetic flaw. Not all genetic flaws are a death sentence, but I don't really see how, I don't, I don't see a lot of statesmanship from the EU about how to balance these problems. And, you know, now that Brexit looks like it's definitely going to happen, um, you can see, you know, I, I wouldn't be stunned by a Spanish exit. Um, they call it spexit, but that's just such a non-euphonious word. Oh, really? That's the, um, that's the best they can do? So surely surely yeah. the language of Spanish itself has a better term for it. Although, it's, you know, so it's, you bring up a funny thing, so we can stop talking about foreign policy stuff. I've gone to the movies a couple times now, because that's the other thing my daughter really wanted to do, and this was all about daddy-daughter or family time stuff, and, you know, it's not like I could, like, tell... My daughter is spending a year in Spain. Oh, you should really, you know, we should really eat Spanish food and go to museums and, and you know, embrace the culture when that's what she's doing for a year. So, you know, it was like, all right, let's go back to Steak Burger um, or, okay, let's go to Hard Rock Cafe. And so we went to the movies instead of museums and stuff. And I saw Knives Out, which was really pretty good. And I saw Rise of Skywalker. But it's really interesting watching the... um these movies with Spanish subtitles and you just realize and one of the things that really comes across is how much smaller a language Spanish is than English and I remember my friend Ron Bailey science correspondent at Reason he lived in Costa Rica for a long time and he said that you know it's funny when you write in English and as you know I'm a stickler about this I hate it, it's considered bad writing to use the same words over and over again but in Spanish, you can write, you can use the same word like in every sentence and it, it's just normal writing. Um, you know, so you, you know, you would say, I took the road. The road was rough. The road was long. You know, you just keep using the word road. You wouldn't change up and say path or, 
you know, course or any of these kinds of things. You can just repeat the same word because there aren't that many synonyms in Spanish. And uh, my favorite example of this actually comes from a friend of mine uh, who also lived in Costa Rica. Um, she uh, saw, I think I talked about this on the podcast, she saw Wayne's World in, in Costa Rica and it had Spanish subtitles and she spoke Spanish. And so the scene where Wayne, I think it's Wayne, says, Sha, uh, when pigs fly out of my butt, was translated into Spanish as, yes, when judgment day comes. <laughs> and, you know, there's just something's lost in the translation, you know, between Sha, when Something pigs fly out of gained, my butt. Perhaps. And perhaps, perhaps. I mean, if, if you, you're more expert on this than I, if there's something in the book of Revelations about, pigs flying out of butts i'm 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 curious to know about it um oh and i i was chastised about this you're not supposed to say book of revelations it's book of revelation right yeah it's not plural right oh yeah i, um, I remember yeah there there were some like ministers or whatnot on, on who tweeted at the remnant complaining about this it was kind of funny yeah, it was your two corinthians I, I, I moment. yes uh, and i'm sure i've had others um well so how do before you... we before we transition, I there are better terms uh, for a Spanish exit from the European Union. Uh, Espanope is one I found, or Espanope, rather. Oh, I like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Madridans. And uh, you know, what we, you know, what wouldn't wouldn't be bad? Uh, Spolita. Yeah. Well, no, Spolita I was just gonna. That's exit. that's another one of them, actually. Oh, is yes. it really? Oh, I thought. I... And here I thought I had, was getting credit for uh, my neologism. Yeah, oh, well. Salida is Spanish for exit, so Spolita. Right. Yeah. So there are better ones than Spexit. Um, um, oh, I have one more anecdote that I forgot that fits with the Judgment Day Book of Revelation thing. So the tradition in Spain on New Year's Eve is that at the stroke of midnight, they ring the bells 12 times. And um, you're supposed to eat a grape with each ringing of the bell. And there was a brief argument at the at the dinner table because my wife thought that you're supposed to fit all twelve grapes in your mouth at the same time. <laughs> and I was like, the idea—it just strikes me that if that were the tradition of an entire nation of drunk people putting twelve grapes in their mouth at at a single time that there would be a significant number of deaths by choking every year in Spain on New Year's Eve. Um, but anyway, so, and it's supposed to be good luck and good fortune for the year ahead if you can keep up with the chiming of the bells. And I did it. I was doing a great job until the 11th or 12th one when, um, and all grapes in Spain are annoyingly with seeds, um, I bit down on my 11th or 12th one and cracked my tooth Oof. Um, uh, on New Year's Eve. And I just have this feeling like like this is really bad luck. Oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it is what it is. And like I haven't been, it's not painful, um, but it is bothersome. And um, um, but the idea on New Year's Day of finding a dentist in Seville uh, was just simply too daunting, so I'll get it taken care of when I get home. A barber, uh, on the other anyway, hand, there's that. 
Yeah, I'm kicking myself. I did not. I need a haircut, and I did not go to a barber in Seville, and I, it kills me. I also found out the extent of my failure as a parent because my daughter thought that the barber of Seville was a Bugs Bunny reference. Oh. Um, <laughs> rather than a Rossini reference in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But uh, I haven't asked her whether she thinks the uh, the flight of the Valkyrie Bugs Bunny um, was uh, whether she thinks that was originated with with Looney Tunes as well, or whether she knows it was a Va- Wagner opera. Got to ask um, her about um, the origin of the phrase "now who's being naive," which people think is now Simpsons created. Yes, I know, I know. There's a lot of those from The Simpsons that. Um, people think come from the Simpsons. It just shows that culture amne- cultural amnesia is, and, and the burning of cult- cultural capital proceeds apace. Um, so you saw Rise of Skywalker? Yes, I did. Opinions? I enjoyed it. Um, but I think I have to say, I, I'm going to climb up a bit on my soapbox here. And I think this is a soapbox that you and I sort of stand on together. Um, I think the perception of Star Wars movies that people like Sonny Bunch and Jonathan Last and even Ross Douthat have created is bad for and for actually enjoying them. I think they have read way too much into them. I think they are something they're not and never have been and never should be, frankly. And now they go into them expecting things that just will have never been apparent and doing that makes it impossible to enjoy them whereas if you just approach them as very sort of well-made uh entertaining movies then as, as i think rise of skywalker was then you'll enjoy it that's what i think yeah i mean i i, I think you're generally right i mean look i mean i just think that the whole idea that the empire was good is wrong yes I mean, and as just, you as you pointed out rather starkly it said at the in the opening credits of the first Star Wars movie to exist, it, it says the evil empire. <laughs> You're not right. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah. It's right there. And I, I when you said that, I heard you say that once, and I had to like go back and look to see to make sure I that like wasn't something you were making up or misremembering. No, it's there. The evil empire. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. So I mean, it's like. If, if if you're going to take it at face value, what George Lucas intended, it's just really I, I think ultimately kind. I mean, it's entertaining, and if there's something there's a there's a meta interesting analysis thing going on, you know, in some of it. Uh, but ultimately, it's just I think it's ultimately kind of dumb, and I don't I don't want to arouse the ire of the sub beacon people. I do. This. I haven't we haven't um, done that in a while, so I do. Yeah. Um. But uh. Um, and you know, the, the place where I think Sonny's stuff really falls apart, um, is the destruction of Alderaan. You know, uh, it was explicitly done as an act of genocide and collective punishment for billions of people or inhabitants, whatever we were supposed to call them, um, were for no military purpose whatsoever. It was just simply to inflict sort of state terror at a galactic level and um, comparing it to Hiroshima or Nagasaki, I think is a real moral disservice. Um, 
That said, I will say that I am indebted to Jonathan Last, who I think makes a much better and stronger case that the androids are slaves. Yeah, um, and that's kind of that. That's kind of been that has sort of been there. It, it's much a more a much more interesting thing that the movies actually kind of lean into a little bit because uh, there's always been like anti-droid discrimination at the margins of the movies. You just don't really notice it. And I don't, I'm not really sure what right. the purpose of it is, but it's always kind of there. And I think it's just sort of supposed to be sort of an assumed part of that universe that these are like basically sentient beings who are treated poorly by not organic beings. Right. At the cantina in Mos Eisley, the bartender says, we don't serve your kind here. Uh-huh. Right. And that's, that's a pretty explicit, you know, reference call out or shout out to, you know, a cultural thing. Um, of you know a cultural instance of bigotry that's like a cliche that you know you that you know segregationist establishments would say that to black people or uh, you know allegedly you know say it to Irish people I think which was only like sixteen years prior to the release of that first movie which is kind of not that long yeah no I know it's kind of, and it's interesting that it didn't get a lot of attention for a decade after <laughs> or more. Um, um, as you should say, as a tangent, I, I'd be interested if we could find a guest who really knows, a good historian who knows this stuff. I've been, maybe my friend Vin Canato, who I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. But I, I do think that the, uh, the way that we talk about Irish discrimination in America is sometimes exaggerated, but, um, that's a topic for another podcast. Um, um, uh, but the, what was the one um where they f- where they have a um they have a they free the they free the droids um it was like two movies ago solo the female was that solo yeah. yeah i mean what was funny what was weird i shouldn't say funny what was weird about that was that that was the first time they explicitly dealt with the issue of like droids being slaves and they played it for laughs <laughs> Which is just a really weird thing to do. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I have a vague memory and, of your discussing this on Glop, and maybe you, or Rob Long, or John Pedort saying something like, "Future generation, when when robots are sentient, they're going to like look at things like this and and just get angry about the level of discrimination against their kind that was exi- that existed in prior media." And they're it's just going to make their us punish yeah. humans and or make them punish humans. Wow, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> um, I'll just leave that aside. Uh, make them punish humans more in the salt mines. Uh, having seen all of this, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember if we talked. I think we talked about this on the podcast somewhere, but um, there was a great piece. Actually. Well, it's a great title of a piece in commentary in the 1990s during the Yugoslav Civil War called by Ed Litvak called um, If Bosnians Were Dolphins. <laughs> um, and the piece itself, I'm not a big fan of Litvak's writing, but the piece itself was sort of, I can't even remember the gist of it, but I always loved the title. And it's a, it's a, it's a really fun sort of abstract way. Like if we found out um, in some future date that in fact, dolphins are completely sentient and have equal intelligence to us in some way and have fully formed emotional states. 
and uh, and then you look back at how we've treated dolphins over the last you know <laughs> few hundred years, it would be it would sort of it would change our entire understanding of 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 history. And um, the same thing, I think you know it's 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 what example of one of these things where your change of understanding today makes you completely understand understand your past differently um and the thing though i mean the the, the so I, I i so i have other problems with the droids like i think it's are you going to complain about r2d2 it, not having not being able to talk yeah so there's that right um the thing can speak in a thousand different languages computer languages Everyone can understand what he's saying, but for some reason they can't just have him articulate English words. It just it's sort of it's absurd. Um but uh have I mentioned that on the podcast or or just with you? I can't even remember now. It was on the most recent glop that you did. Was it really? Oh, I apologize. I, which is why I knew you were going to say it. Yeah, it's like a million years ago. I know ago that wasn't really that been here for so long. I don't blame you because that December 19th feels like an eternity away for me as well. Yeah. And, um, 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 but like the other problem is, is that the idea, you know, they're like the pod pointed out, like in the Mandalorian, they have a little joke about the terrible sort of Atari 2600 graphics that were in the first Star Wars movie, which is of course absurd. You know, a, a society that technologically advanced wouldn't basically make all of their strategic diagrams look like Pong. Um, but, um, but you know, so the other thing, getting back to this sort of, oh my gosh, the droids are sentient beings and they're slaves and they're being treated horribly, which is like manifest in, in the Mandalorian as well. Um, the idea that uh, they wouldn't just make androids that look like human beings... Um, seems also kind of bizarre, right? I mean, they clearly have the technology to do it. They have this clone technology. They can mend all of these wounds, all of this stuff, but they can't um, make the androids like from the Alien movies. I mean, it just makes no sense. And if they had... But the thing is, if they did do that, if they did put flesh around the T-1000s, like in Terminator or something, it would make their their enslaved status too painful um, and too obvious. It would become much more Blade Runner-y. Um, so they have to make them like the Tin Man or like, you know, an 8-track tape, you know, player on wheels um, so that you're okay with them being slaves, which I just think is sort of a kind of interesting choice. I, I Anyway, back to the movie. I, I generally agree with you that it was enjoyable but it, it benefited for me i benefited from low expectations because everyone was really dunking on it um i thought some of the writing was really bad um uh, not quite as bad as in the prequels with the i hate sand stuff but um the uh you know the secret of how they you know at some point there's this line where um i can't remember who says it but you know they say the the secret to how we you know survived and how we we won was that we did it together you know like as a family or something no like that. you know, oh that's oh you're talking about when uh, that's when Poe is asking Lando how they how they beat the Empire with basically that's nothing. right yeah yeah and that was real hallmark movie of the week writing right there and 
as you know, I'm a big critic of the cult of unity and this idea that unity is somehow this this inherently moral thing in all circumstances. They said, and the Lando said he, that we had each other. He didn't say we did it as a family. Yeah, that was sort of the. I mean, there was a lot of, you know, you know, our secret was uh, was the friends we made along the way kind of sentiment in the thing, and you know, I like, like a, having friends myself. Yeah, no, I do too. But like, you know, the empire was pretty unified too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know? um, so, um, and um, but did you see this thing on Twitter where I guess they're they're soliciting story ideas from new Star Wars movies? I don't. That wasn't an official account. I don't think it wasn't. No. Oh, that's a bummer. I think that was um, just like a fan account. Oh, I thought it was something about Lucasfilm putting out a call for script ideas, but maybe I misread it. Because um, um, I actually think that would be a great idea. You know, like you know how they did a sort of like open auditions, so all the geeks could do their cosplay on YouTube and send it in. Um, I, I think. Since they clearly have a um, imagination problem um, in the Star Wars industry, it would be kind of cool if they actually took suggestions. My suggestion was that they should do a sort of my dinner with Andre version of Star Wars where um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader just sit at a restaurant and have conversations about like reminiscing about the past and filling in a lot of the blank spots in the in the backstory of the Star Wars universe. And you could do it, get two really good actors. You could have some, you know, some gags with bad service or whatever. But you could do the whole thing sort of as a Netflix movie. So cheap, you know, $10, $20 million all in. No CGI, no star cruiser battles. And um, it may not be the top grossing Star Wars movie of all time, but it would... um, um, undoubtedly be the most profitable one <laughs> just because you know it would cost nothing to make it's sort of like when nick gillespie said um in my podcast with him that you know he would love uh a star wars universe c-span where they just covered um the senate debating you know trade routes and all that kind of stuff i think reason.tv um, actually did have uh like a mock video about like along these lines uh, did they really? I think I, I I remember something along these lines with that Andrew, the one who did the I don't know. the video with um where they intercut footage into the Kavanaugh hearings. That guy. Oh right, right, right. Um, oh, I should check it out. But yeah, that could be that would be kind of funny. But I frankly, I think we, you and I, both know the truth here, which is that Star Wars is just inferior to Dune, and. Uh, next year when the new Dune film comes out, we're going to be just completely insufferable, however well it's received, uh, because Star Wars ripped all of its ideas off of Dune anyway, um, so Dune, man, that's where it's at. That's what I think. I certainly agree that if they could figure out how to make a Dune movie, and let's, let's be honest, they've tried. <laughs> um, no, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> and, um... If they could pull it off and not make it look cheesy or forced or whatever, the the extended universe of the Dune stuff would be an endless source of awesome movies. Um, so I, I, I hope they pull it off, but I'm, I'm I remain skeptical.
You are aware that a but Dune movie see. is coming out next year, right? I've told I must have told you. Yes, about I know. This. We've we. Yes, I, I, I. There have been days where I've been pained to find you talking about anything else. <laughs> you know? But uh, <laughs> um, uh, we'll see. We shall see. Um, uh, there just seems to be something about the source material that Hollywood, you know, blanches at. At the same time, they're not it doing took enough forever. spice. That's why. It took forever for them to get to the point where they could actually make a Lord of the Rings movie, you know, where the technology was up to snuff. And the same thing with like the, the Marvel movie. So maybe finally it'll work. Um, but you know, we, we shall see. All right. Is there anything else, um, that we, uh, need to discuss? I mean, not like we really needed to discuss any of this in the first place. <laughs> this was a pretty, pretty casual episode of, of the remnant. Um, Gosh, I can't think of anything really. Uh, there's been no. I haven't been in. Wa- I got back to Washington about a week ago. Week, week plus. There's been so little happening here. It's very weird to be here this time of year. There's like nothing going on. It's kind of nice actually. Um, and it's really kind of funny. It to me, it it, it sort of suggests a. Uh, it deflates the the idea of the all importance of the federal government. The fact that the way this city works is that twice a year, basically nothing happens here. Like all of August, yeah, and most of December, or like between the dead parts of December and January, like basically a month. Uh, you'd think if the government mattered like that much, then that would actually be a sort of a big deal. But it just is sort of built into the rhythm of the city, and no one really seems to care. So um, it's my long-winded way of saying nothing is happening here that is worth discussing. Yeah, although the the, the Suleimani thing, I think, will turn out to be you know have legs. That's true. Um, but uh, no, I know what you mean, and it, that, that's made it even. That's been another reason why it's been hard to do, you know, to keep up the columns. It's just that it just it it particularly when nothing seems to be going on at home, it's hard to figure out. You know what what the news pegs are and all that kind of stuff. Um. um all right. Oh so, wait, there is one thing. I think. Um. Yes. I wanted to say something about dolphins because you you were talking yes. <laughs> you were talking about how if we found out that dolphins were sentient, they would be they would be mad. I mm-hmm. I think dolphins dolphins are not they're not perfect creatures. Uh, I'm pretty sure that oh they rape yeah they rape. Right? Uh, and they have figured out how to um, basically use pufferfish as a drug. They're kind of like they're kind of bad, kind of bad bad animals. So if it, yeah, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't be pissed at us for getting them caught in their gill our gill nets. That's true. <laughs> I, but they they there there are no there are no unblemished figures in this in the dolphin human struggle. No, and this is, you know, this is actually a, a point that I've, I've actually wanted to write about before in that all of these movies that have animals in them, you know, these cartoons that have animals as the main characters, um, and there are, you know, a zillion Disney movies along these lines. The, the thing is, is that in order to make the animals sort of, uh, objects of our affection and sympathy, they basically have to make them humans. Yep. 
you know, they all have human emotions, human values, human relationships. You know, if you try to depict the spaghetti eating scene in Lady and the Tramp <laughs> in, 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 in biologically and zoologically accurate terms, um, it would be quite graphic <laughs> and, and, and not G-rated children's fair. And I, so I mean, I, my point is, is that there is something that we, you know, animal lover types love these kinds of movies and kids love animals and all of the rest. But the only way to make them lovable is to actually make them, you know, you know, furry quadrupedal humans. Because if you, if you depicted, don't get me started on polar bears, but if you depict most of these animals in the way that they actually, even like in Lion King, right? You don't see, um, uh, you know, you don't see the, the, the lady lions actually take down the antelopes. Um, they just come back with this almost sort of Looney Tunes style, um, haunch. Of gazelle meat. Oh yeah, and give it to everybody as if as if they had bought it from the supermarket or something. <laughs> um, which is particularly realistic being in Spain because everywhere you go, you can see these these haunches of Iberian ham for sale. Um, and uh, but anyway, uh, it's I just think it's sort of an interesting sort of insight into into what we're actually looking for in these movies is just gross anthropo anthropomorphization of of animals um and you know we don't actually treat the animals the way um they exist in the wild because if they existed if let's put it this way if humans behave if you made a movie about how where you had humans behaving like polar bears or chimpanzees we would think this is a movie about absolutely horrifying human beings. Yeah. Um, but if you make the animals behave like humans, oh, they're adorable. Look at that, you know. Um, all right. Yeah, this is, so this is a good that. way to end. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we have for uh, launch month of uh, The Remnant, we will make up for this. The Dispatch. Uh, uh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. For the launch month of the Dispatch, we have a lot of exciting new remnants lined up. We're going to have David Brooks, Ross Douthat, Jake Tapper, Brett Baer, uh, and a couple others that we haven't nailed down yet. So I don't want to like get ahead, put the cart ahead of the horse, but um, we're going to come out swinging in January. So we figured having a meandering conversational what I did on my Christmas vacation conversation was okay. Um, you had a good New Year's, I trust? Yeah, it was very low-key, uh, which I'm fine with. Um, and, uh, and I assume the same for Christmas. And so anyway, I want to thank everybody, um, for sticking with us. I want to thank everybody who signed up at the dispatch. Everything's free for the time being. So please do it. Test the, you know, give it a test drive. Sign up for the G file. Sign up for the morning dispatch. Sign up for David French. Um, and subscribe to our new podcast, which we'll be announcing uh, very, very soon. So with that, I look forward to seeing you, Jack, back in D.C. and getting back into the rhythm of everything for the new year. And uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Feliz Navidad. And I, if I remembered how to say Happy New Year in Spanish, I would, but I forgot already. And uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. May the force be with you.
And with your spirit. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I can't. I I can't tell if this is this is. Yeah, it is gold. Uh, I'll I'll try to make use of this in some way. Um, 